Ladies and gentlemen, grab your drinks and popcorn. Terry's feature is about to begin. Welcome to Celluloid Codswallop. And welcome to this week's Celluloid Codswallop. And this definitely is a Celluloid Codswallop episode this time. We're not mixing Talking Codswallop with Celluloid Codswallop. Though Gemma isn't here and she, she'll feel bad about that. She has apologised, asked me to apologise in advance to the guest I have on this episode. But by God, this is a good one. This is uh, The guest I've got on for this week is Steve Rubin. And I know I've been mocked numerous times for saying this when I make the comment about someone being a multi-talented threat, or I say that someone who has multiple skills. Steve wears many, many hats, uh, and I really do mean he wears many, many hats. So firstly, Steve, thank you for coming on. How are you doing? I'm great, James. It's great to be here. I have to ask you a question. The yes. word codswallop is not well known in Los Angeles. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that the name of one of the characters in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Because isn't there a guy named Codswallop or was that the name of the candy that he produced? Or am I completely mixing it up with something else? I think you might be mixing it up with something else. I think Codswallop here is it's generally described as using a term where you kind of talking rubbish or nonsense so we decided talking codswallop could be quite a funny way or Gemma did it was her <laughs> her creation of a name got it okay perfect and maybe his name was god swallow or it was some kind of swallow but the idea of talking nonsense is perfectly in tune with me because i spend most of my <laughs> life talking in arcane nonsensical ways so uh, we're we're perfectly in tune excellent now, the first question I'm going to ask you, and obviously, that, as I said, and I don't know if I said it, but I will say it again. Thank you for coming on. Uh, tell us a bit about yourself. What's your background, Steve? Okay. I was born in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, my father hated the winters there, so he moved out to sunny California where his brother had a business. And at the age of four, I was one of the first people to ever go to Disneyland. It opened in 1955. And there I was. I was one of the first attendees. So I got uh, bitten with a little fantasy there. Uh, went to school. Uh, loved movies all my life. Uh, from the ages of five to ten, I lived across the street from a movie theater. So I literally lived at the movie theater, mostly on the weekends, but my parents would take me there for adult films. And when I say adult films, I just mean not kids' films as opposed to porno. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> love movies. My mother was particularly a movie buff. She loved all the actresses and actors from the golden age. So she, before I was learning ABCs, I was learning Clark Gable, Vivian Lee, David Niven. And then when I went to school, I became a writer for my college newspaper. I spent two years at UCLA, junior and senior year. And I got a degree in history. Uh, when I got out of college, I wanted to write something. They say write about something that you're interested in and then you can contribute to. So of all things, 
I picked World War II combat films, um, films about World War II. So I started interview, uh, you know, looking for people to interview because I wanted to learn the behind-the-scenes histories of how these classic war films were made. And my my research at that time was the Beverly Hills Phone Directory. In those days, they actually listed people. Uh, <clears throat> and I found a screenwriter named Michael Blankfort. Now, this name probably doesn't mean anything to anybody, but he was a blacklisted screenwriter during that period in Hollywood where they were investigating communist subversion. But he wrote one of my favorite films of the 1950s, a film that is lesser known today, but it's called Halls of Montezuma, which is with Richard Widmark. It's about the U.S. Marines fighting the Japanese on a Pacific island. But Michael filled in a lot of the interesting behind-the-scenes information for me. For instance, Richard Boone, the great character actor, is playing a lieutenant in the movie, and he has a cold. And the, his big character trait is he can't stop sneezing. He's, you know, he's fighting World War II, but he's also got an, uh, a cold. So Michael told me that he actually gave that idea to the actor to give him a little bit more presence rather than just being another soldier. So these are the kind of behind the scenes bits that nobody had ever heard before, which intrigued me. Now, about the same time, I subscribed to a magazine out of Chicago called Cine Fantastique. Now, Cine Fantastique, you'll recall, was a major film magazine, the first to cover science fiction, fantasy and horror movies. So um, I had been doing some research <clears throat> for my World War II book. And I came across a writer who also wrote a movie called Them. Now, I don't know if you remember Them. Them was a movie that was Warner Brothers released in 1954 about gigantic ants in the New Mexico desert. Uh, so uh, once again, Ted told me interesting things about this movie. And, and Fred Clark, the editor of this magazine, asked me to write an article. So that article came out. Now, what was interesting so I went to Warner Brothers and I needed to illustrate the article. Now, I actually told them about the magazine. I told them about the article and they invited me in to look at the key still book. And in the key still book, they had behind the scenes shots of them. Now, no one on the planet had ever seen a behind the scenes shot from them as far as I knew. So when the, the article was published and those photographs appear, there were there was fan mail. I got my first fan mail. And Fred was very pleased with the reaction and the level of the research because I also interviewed Gordon Douglas, the director. So I got some good insight. <clears throat> and my next assignment I spent six months on. Uh, well, actually, it was, it was not, not the next, but one of my assignments. I did Forbidden Planet. I did The Day the Earth Stood Still. The Day the Earth Stood Still article took six months. And I interviewed everybody alive who worked on that movie, including director Robert Wise and um, producer Julie Blaustein, Edmund North. Edmund North actually told me what Klaatu Barada Nikto means. Now, we've been wandering around for decades wondering what the hell Klaatu's saying to his giant steel robot, or at least what Patricia Neal is asked to say to the giant steel robot. And Edmund North said it means there's hope for Earth if the scientists can be reached. How about that, huh? That's, that's yes, I like that. I like that a lot. And that's a very apt thing if you look at life in general, even now. 
Yeah, I mean, so as I kind of started calling myself a film archaeologist, because in a way, instead of going into an ancient Egyptian tomb, I was going into classic movies and doing my research and I had a lot of fun. I mentioned Forbidden Planet when I was asked when I decided to do a behind the scenes story about Forbidden Planet, which is one of the great science fiction movies of all time. I was told to go see a person named Bill Malone. And Bill Malone was a film director in Studio City. And when I walked into his den for my interview, guess who's standing there? Robbie the Robot. The original Robbie the Robot. I nearly fell over. I mean, I walked over and shook hands with him. I I, and Bill, this is let's see, this is 1974. So this is 48 years ago. Bill is still one of my closest friends. I'm working with him on one of his directing projects, um, trying to get it produced. Um, But it's it's these kinds of stories of being exposed to the colorful history of Hollywood really got me excited about working in the business. But I learned early on, James, that I could not make a living doing this. I mean, for instance, that article on the day there is to still, I, I really didn't make any money for it. I mean, uh, they gave me extra copies of the magazines to sell at conventions, but I was doing it for the pure love. So I had to get a day job. So uh, I was very fortunate. I actually became a publicist in Hollywood back in the 70s. Uh, my first assignment was to be hired by United Artists and director Phil Kaufman to uh, promote a movie, the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the Donald Sutherland, Leonard Nimoy remake. And my job was to go around to science fiction conventions all over the United States, put up a table, show slides and share information about this new movie. So once again, I found an opportunity to just get involved in filmmaking and share secrets about the movie. And I did that for 10 months. And then I went to work in a PR agency uh, to carry on that kind of duty. And then I discovered there was a craft in Hollywood on film sets called a unit publicist where the film crew has its own publicist. So I got that job and ended up doing that for 20 years. Can I take you back to something that really got got my attention? Because I knew you'd, you, the, the kind of the, the, the publicist work and things you'd done. But you were pretty much there for the birth of the convention scene. If you're going to things that early. So what was it like that early on when you were doing them? Well, actually, when I mentioned the fact that I was making very little money for my articles, Fred Clark, the editor, would would give me literally a stack of all the back issues. And since these weren't readily available, I would set up a table at a convention and sell issues and Fred would split the money with me, which was a little form of a payday for me, which was great. But it was very low key. Um, <clears throat> science fiction conventions would get maybe a thousand, maybe two thousand people. I went down to San Diego Comic Con for Invasion of the Body Snatchers and there were about 500 people there. 500 people. They get about 500 people a minute now. You know, and they have 150,000 people at these conventions. Uh, so the circuit was popular and enthusiastic, but not as massively attended as some of the conventions are today. Uh, uh, I learned <laughs> I learned early on, though, that uh, one of the promotional items for Invasion of the Body Snatches were bumper stickers, you know, to get kids excited. But I learned that was a bad idea because they were they were sticking them on elevators and the hotel was furious about that. So that didn't quite work. 
So things haven't changed too much on that. You'll always get people sticking things pro where they shouldn't go. Because at one stage we had talking codswallop stickers that Gemma created and they were getting stuck all, <laughs> all over right. the place. Exactly. I, um, I, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, promotional items can be fun. Um, let's see. Five years later, I was assigned to a Columbia 3D movie called Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone which was kind of a it was it was a movie that was released kind of in the shadow of Return of the Jedi in the summer of 1983 it did well its opening weekend it was Molly Ringwald's second movie and I um, thought so when you mentioned the name I kept thinking why is it familiar and I've seen she's got short hair in it yeah so we we created 3D buttons so that was cool we passed out thousands of 3D buttons and I actually uh it, Ivan Reitman was the the lead producer and uh, I convinced the studio to let me take a national tour out. Now, having done the Body Snatchers tour, which was basically me flying into cities, this time we got a big panel truck, painted the name of the movie on the side of the truck, and then we had a trailer behind it carrying uh, these uh, futuristic vehicles from Space Hunter. So we actually drove on the road for 63 days cross-country exhibit, exhibiting at fairs and, you know, uh, convention centers. So it was a lot of fun. It was uh, very challenging. The concept of physically going on national tours is not as popular anymore because it's not as cost-effective. You know, you take one TV ad on national television, you can reach more people in five minutes than I reached in 63 days. But uh, it was a different form of promotion in those days. It is. It's in, I mean, yeah, you can hear from what you're saying that it's a massive change in promotion, but obviously that's quite an effective way of looking at doing it, the way you did it at that point, isn't it? To show something that you've got. Because if you think about going to a convention uh, and when films come out at certain places, certainly when they have the premieres, people will gravitate to vehicles and things from the film because it immediately gets their attention. And if it's sci-fi, it's different. Well, if you've seen the movie, Peter Strauss, the lead actor, yeah. drives what is called the Scrambler, which is kind of an all-terrain vehicle. It was actually a pickup truck they made into a futuristic vehicle. So that was on our tour with us. So we arrive in Washington, D.C. Now, you have to picture this, James. On the top of the Scrambler is a rather large laser cannon. So I came up with this brilliant idea that I was going to be arrested in front of the White House pointing a laser cannon at the White House. Of course, this is something you couldn't do within three miles of that place. Back in 1983, they didn't. there was actually a street in front of the White House. It wasn't blocked off as it is these days. So I parked the car, the scrambler. First of all, you have to understand, I am elite, this is an illegal vehicle to drive anywhere. There's no... Yeah, there's no uh, instrumentation. Uh, you can't tell wh- what's going on. It's supposed to be you know, utilized in a movie on a set in the desert. I'm driving it down Pennsylvania Avenue. People are looking at me crazy. I parked it in front of the, wash, uh, uh, the White House, and nothing happened. Nothing. Now, today, I, every Secret Service uh, and uh, security person in, in Washington would have been down on me. I would have been on the sidewalk handcuffed. But back in 1983, there was a ho-hum moment. So I didn't achieve my uh, 
goal of getting in the national newspapers. But uh, it just shows you how wacky I was thinking. I was thinking in kind of a cod swallop kind of way. I think it's exceptionally good thinking, but I'm also going to be honest. I'm kind of glad you weren't. <laughs> it didn't get their attention because so I think you might run the risk of being shot. <laughs> to be fair, I'll tell you a funny story. My my son and his friends are all young filmmakers, mm-hmm. so they like to go off in the woods and make little films. You know, like young boys, they're always carrying uh, uh, facsimiles of automatic rifles and handguns, as boys will do. I, Kind of wince a little bit sometimes, but one day uh, they're up in the woods near my house in Los Angeles, and they said, "Dad, Dad, Dad, we need we need a a, a getaway car. Can you drive up to the, bring the Prius up to? <laughs> I have a little Prius. They, they bring the Prius up there, and we'll take it." So I, I drive, you know, as the dutiful dad, I drive the car up to the the woods there. This is right behind the Getty Center, which is a big art center in Los Angeles, and they come walking out to the car carrying their rifles. I said, are you insane? You can't walk around with those things. (laughs) The words were still coming out of my mouth, and I looked up, and there was a helicopter above me. And within three minutes, there were four police cars, and we we were all down on the sidewalk handcuffed. And uh, they they don't waste any time. You know, the Getty Center has a lot of security cameras. Mm. They saw kids coming out of the forest with automatic weapons. You can imagine what they were thinking. So we had to talk our uh, way out of that very quickly. We ended up getting a, a slap on the wrist, not getting the proper permits to be shooting any kind of short film. So we all learned our lesson. But you haven't really lived until you're sitting on a sidewalk, handcuffed, and they say, get up. And you say, how? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad nothing bad came from it. But yeah, <laughs> as soon as you mentioned... Then walking with guns, I thought this could end interestingly. Yes, you see, I'm quite a disruptor here. Now, now I'm very, I, I'm very um, anti-gun. In fact, all the writing I'm doing right now is comedy. I, I'm focusing as a screenwriter on writing comedies with my partners. I have two different partners. Uh, one we write animated comedy, one we write live-action comedy, and uh, we're staying away with any type of gunplay. No, totally understandable. You've obviously said that you got into into writing the articles and you got into working as a publicist. When you were a, a child, what was it you wanted to do? I'm always intrigued to learn what people wanted to do. I at one stage wanted to be a vet. I also wanted to be Optimus Prime at one point, but that never happened. That never worked out. So, Cost of the metal alone would have been ruined. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, well, let's see. I love I love planes when I grew I, when I was growing up so I thought about uh, aeronautical engineer but uh, when I took drafting class in middle school I couldn't draw a straight line to save my life I was the one who was always using the eraser the most and then I thought about archaeologists after seeing a, a, you know reading all about how you're looking for these ancient artifacts that sounded fascinating until I saw one of those mummy movies and there were snakes and spiders and mummies running around. I said, nah, I don't think I want to do that. So that, that <laughs> fell by the side. Uh, I, <laughs> I, you know, there's a lot of pressure on students today when you're in school that you've got to know exactly what you want to do. I can say categorically when I finished college, I didn't have a clue 
I thought about television news broadcasting because I had written for my college paper. But the idea of shoving microphones in people's faces did not sound very appetizing. Um, I thought about teaching. Uh, you know, I kind of did a lot of little jobs. I was a parking lot attendant. I was a delivery man. Um, you know, all, all different odd jobs. I was a host at a restaurant. I was kind of biding my time until I found something I was really passionate about. And then I discovered all along that it was right there in front of me, a, a love of movies. And I was able to translate that into a paying career for 30 years as a as a publicist. I've made some money from writing. I'm not going to deny that. <clears throat> but uh, for those 30 years, PR was my mainstay. So on to writing, I'm going to ask you a writing based question, which is you have created a trilogy of Bond, James Bond. I will deem as like reference books, if that be the right terminology, which is the James Bond films of behind the scenes history, the complete James Bond movie encyclopedia, and the James Bond movie encyclopedia. So I know I've hit you with the three, three books you've written. So to ask you all about that in one encompassing question is probably going to be rather tricky, but I can only imagine one of the most challenging aspects of them is obviously doing the research for them. But prior to that, I want to know what made you choose them as your books. I'm going to assume logically you are a Bond fan. So how did you get into the Bond? Because when I've read up on things you've done, you originally were interested in the Bond novels. That's how you became aware of them. Uh, Like most middle school students, uh, I love the Bond novels. It's a funny story because my father would go on business trips and he would bring home Westerns. I had no interest in reading Westerns because there were like 2000 of them on TV every week. You know, there were, that was the 1950s and early 1960s. Westerns were king. But one day in 1964, he threw a book on my desk with a picture of a naked woman on the cover. She was covered in gold paint and she was positioned in a way that it wasn't really pornographic, but it was called Goldfinger. And I said, what's that? He said, you might like that. So he hands me Goldfinger and I read it and it's, you're talking about a third, actually a 12 year old boy reading Goldfinger. Now I was a rather sheltered only child. I did not have sisters. So women had really not entered my life to any, <laughs> any uh, heavy uh, repetition. So uh, this was kind of my exposure to kind of sex and sexiness, etc. And then, of course, that Christmas of 64, Goldfinger, the movie came out. When I went to see that, and we didn't go to the Chinese theater very often, if ever. So this was a big event to go up to the Chinese theater in Hollywood and see Goldfinger. Talk about a seminal experience for me to see that movie. Probably one of the sexiest movies ever. And to this day, um, my favorite Bond movie. So it hasn't changed in all these years. Uh, So those were great inspirations for me to love the Bond movies. And like everybody else, we all went crazy for James Bond. By 1977, there had only been one book done on the Bond movies. It was a a British author named John Brosnan's James Bond in the cinema, which was more of a a kind of a tribute to the series as opposed to a a research behind the scenes history. So... um, I had gotten my combat films book finished 
but uh, it did not sell any real serious copies. So I was looking for a subject that would appeal to more than just a few World War II movie fans. And it dawned on me that I could apply the same kind of research I'd done for the Cinefantastique articles to the world of James Bond. So what did I do? I made an appointment to see Albert R. Broccoli. You know, he's kind of the godfather of James Bond. How? <laughs> you know, just now uh, that would be impossible. So. Yeah, it was just a case of, well, it's, uh, I'm not quite sure exactly what happened, but I did call up MGM. I asked to speak to Mr. Broccoli's office. I explained who I was. I was a film historian. I had just written combat films. I'm talking about a, I'm right, thinking of writing a book about the Bonds. And I must have cut, caught Cubby on a good day because I got an interview with him, and he seemed pleased enough to invite me to London and to meet his stepson, Michael Wilson. And Michael Wilson opened all the doors for me. He actually opened the filing cabinets at Ian and Audley Square, and I was able to get the call sheets for the first 10 films. Now, when you're researching the history of a movie, the call sheet is like a Rosetta Stone. It tells you who was working that day, what they were working on, who the extras were, what this, the order of business was. So it's like a, a terrific little diary of it. So I could say that on, on January 3rd, Goldfinger was shooting in this place or Dr. No was shooting in that place. So it really became the fundamental basis for a lot of the, the background information I gathered. And then, of course, I did interviews after interviews. I arrived in London just after they wrapped The Spy Who Loved Me. So I wasn't able to see the filming, but Michael and Ken Adam, the wonderful production designer, drove me out to Pinewood Studios in Ken's Rolls Royce. I felt like a member of royalty. And we saw one of the first screenings of The Spy Who Loved Me. And I just love that movie. It was just so exciting to see it in this Pinewood Studios screening room. I felt so privileged. And I think I was on a backpacking trip that summer after my research was finished. And I was driving across uh, Spain and I heard Carly Simon's song for the first time. Uh, so nobody does it better. Of, so that was exciting. Hell of a song. Hell of a, I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. I love this by loving. I mean, I'm. For me, Bond is just, it's, it's always been something that's been in my life and, and, and always been something that's interests me. Now, for me, my favorite Bond is The Living Daylights. Uh, I can watch that. I've watched that. Well, let's be honest. I've watched that film more times than I care to even think about. Um, and for me, Tim Dalton's an absolutely brilliant Bond. Uh, but it's, uh, when you met the broccoli, family and you got to to interact with them what were they like as people because i'm never going to get to meet them i don't think so well you know i i sometimes refer to albert r broccoli as the godfather of bond he is the godfather of bond i mean you walk into this enormous office in the administration building at uh mgm studios now now of course sony studios and uh, he's sitting behind his desk. I mean, this is Albert R. Broccoli. I mean, this is a guy who's a legend in the business. Uh, slow talking, you know, serious. Uh, was interested that I was interested in behind the scenes information. Uh, I'm sure he had done interviews before, but I, I'm kind of a forensic interviewer. I go into very specific details about how things came together. 
And he told me about his efforts to get involved with the bond early on and how he eventually had to hook up with Harry Saltzman, who had the rights. And they went to Columbia Pictures because Cubby had great relationships with Columbia. They had been releasing the movies he had been making with Irving Allen. Uh, Irving Allen was his partner in Warwick Pictures in London. They made a lot of adventure films with Alan Ladd and Victor Mature. But Ir Ir Irving Allen did not like the Bond idea. So he was forced to look elsewhere and he ended up hooking up with Harry. So all that was very interesting to me in terms of, uh, of learning the early history of the James Bond movies. And now we're talking 60 years of history. So I feel like I've done a good stewardship of presenting that history over the course. You call it a trilogy, but the first book, the James Bond films behind the scenes history, which was the first book I wrote when I interviewed Cubby, that was a, a renewed that I revived it for a second edition. The encyclopedia is pretty much four different editions. The latest one is the fourth edition of that encyclopedia, which is currently out now and includes no time to die uh, as much of it that I could get because I was about to see the movie, but unfortunately they pushed it again. So it's very hard to bring out your encyclopedia not having seen the movie, but I have, I think I have enough fun stuff in there plus some good photographs. Um, so that's the fourth edition. And I, I, I needed to do a fourth edition because I had not done one since 2003. So I'd missed all the Craigs. And of course, the Craigs are very critical. And what would you say when you talk about interviewing people? Who has been the most re rewarding person for you to speak to on a personal level? Well, the early interviews were like opening a, a door to a new world for me because I didn't know much about the behind the scenes history because there was nothing much out there. You know, so uh, one of the my favorite interviews was uh, with Terrence Young, who directed Dr. No from Russia with Love and Thunderball. I mean, what a storyteller he was. I mean, he's uh, he's a rather dashing fellow. In fact, Terrence Young and another incarnation could easily have been James Bond. He he was definitely a guy who knew the right wines and he knew how to party and talk about a dashing guy. I mean, he was a tank officer in the British Army during World War Two. He was with the Guards Armored Division, which uh, was very active on the Western Front. So uh, and he and his his tutelage was he. He worked early on uh, under the, uh, the mentorship of John Ford. So I think that Terrence Young brought a lot of interesting uh, skills to movie making. And I can't think of a better director to direct three of the first James Bond movies, three of the four. Well, I think, is, correct me if I'm wrong, but for the fact that to kind of get Connery looking more suave, Terence Young was quite instrumental in helping him do that, wasn't he? Is that true? The, I believe the comment about he got him to obviously go to the correct Savile Row tailor, told him to sleep in the suit sort of thing, to to become more one with it, shall we say, so it became more of a, a second skin almost. Oh, you have to say Sean Connery was a little unpolished when he came to Bond is a great understatement. In fact, uh, there, there was rather disparaging comments made about Sean Connery when he first got the role in America, which can be very insulting at times. They called him that limey truck driver. You know, it's like they, they had no respect for him whatsoever. They wanted stars. They wanted they wanted Burt Lancaster. They wanted Jimmy Stewart. They wanted Frank Sinatra. 
uh, you know, who the hell, who the heck is Sean Connery? In fact, there's a story. I don't know if this is entirely true, but in France, Sean Connery sounds a little bit like Son Connery, which I guess translated means without balls. So whenever we hear with the name Sean Connery, they would laugh. Now, I don't know if that's entirely true, but because I don't speak fluent French, but uh, I'm sure somebody will explain that to me. But I think that if you go back and you see the early James Bond movies, Sean, uh, Dr. No from Russia Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, Connery was such a revelation in that role, just star maker all across the board. And unlike some of the other actors in Bond that haven't really done many other things, Connery did some wonderful other projects. I mean, he when he passed away a couple of years ago, it was a little it was like a, to use a Star Wars term, something you know, something uh, was a disturbance in the force because Connery was a force mm-hmm. and we all miss him. Uh, he, he was wonderful in literally everything he ever did. The presence, I, I never met him, but I just understand that he's somebody who had real presence throughout his life. You know, he'd go in a room you would know. And he definitely was somebody who would never back down from someone. <laughs> I, I, did, I did find it interesting recently to learn that the tallest James Bond is Timothy Dalton. Yep. I, I think he's the same height I am, six foot two and a half. I think. I think we're, just, we're the same height. I, you know, I've, I, I like Timothy. To be honest, this is just my personal opinion. I don't think he was totally right for Bond. I think that he was kind of a little mixture. I think he was very serious, so he had the Connery side down. But um, he didn't. People don't go to Bond movies entirely for the seriousness. They like the funny lines. They like the, you know, the, the little double entendres. They certainly like the romance. And I don't think Timothy was as comfortable, at least yet, in that aspect. And as you and I have talked about, as much as I thought Living Daylights was really a terrific Bond movie, I was not a fan of License to Kill. I thought it played like a, a Miami Vice episode. And I thought that it was not the world that Bond should travel in, even though there are some great things in License to Kill. I mean, the whole uh, uh, relationship between him and the hel- and the pilot, Pam Bouvier, was, I thought, mm-hmm. terrific. And I thought Robert Davi was a very, very good villain. Just the whole caper about stolen, you know, about all that drug stuff was just, to me, a little dull. And I can I can see where people will have that. And, you know, I, I will love Dalton's work. But again, I totally see what you mean, because when you look at License to Kill, I can watch and enjoy it as a Bond film, but there are elements, the times when I'm watching it, I'm feeling this isn't feeling as Bondian as it probably should. And I think, as you said, it was trying to probably go for that almost Mammy Vice style. Because I, I also understand they were looking at, they were trying to get him to wear like pastel colors, <laughs> which would not have worked. <laughs> you know, it's when you make a James Bond movie, you have to check a lot of boxes. Now, the mm-hmm. boxes have changed over the years. The term sexy probably has been the most dramatic change because what you could do in 1964 in Goldfinger, you can't go within 20 miles of today. That scene in Goldfinger where you meet James Bond being massaged by Dink, you know, and he slaps her on the bottom and says, man talk. You do that today, you get your hands removed. It's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
And I just think the, 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 the sexiness of the early Bond movies has been replaced by violence. Now the movies are much more violent in keeping with what the other, com- uh, other um, uh, film, genre, the film series are doing. See, the thing was, when James Bond appeared for the first time in the early 60s, there was virtually no competition. Now you've got to deal with the Mission Impossible movies. You've got to deal with the Bourne movies. You've got to deal even the Kingsman series, which is a little more light. It still has a lot of trickery that steals a note from Bond. So the producers, in trying to come up with stuff for a new Bond movie, have to find things that are hard to find, harder to find. I give them uh, a lot of credit. You know, I know that No Time to Die has uh, been very controversial for many people. But I thought on the big screen, it was uh, it was definitely big screen entertainment. The reason we go to the big screen is to see movies like No Time to Die. Yeah, it was certainly for me. No Time to Die was how can I put this nicely? I enjoyed it. Elements of it. I used some rather choice language at the end of it. The people around me are rather shocked by. We will not use the language because I want to keep us so everyone can listen to us. But there was a very strong expletive used by me. Upon further viewings of it, when I could watch it at home and things, I, I've warmed to it more. But I will say, I think they've got – the way they did it, to be fair, is brilliant. To actually make it a self-contained selection of films for Craig, it takes balls to to – if you haven't seen it, people tough uh, to kill him off at the end, you know, of no time to die. It takes guts because initially when I didn't like it, I stepped back and looked and thought, well, they've done something that no one ever expected to happen. And probably a bit more on the realism, because let's be honest, he would die. Some, you know, I mean, to be fair, Bond would be dead in the first five minutes. It was full and, full and complete reality. But he would, you know, so there's going to be a point where he would be killed off. Well, you know, I I disagree with their decision. I don't think it had to be that way, but uh, they set it up that it kind of had to be that way. You know, I th- I don't think James Bond goes through life with a wife and kids. That's not the James Bond we want to see. So you can't you can't you can't have it. When they reboot the series, and they undoubtedly will reboot it in a big way with a new actor mm-hmm. playing Bond. He's going to go back to being a lone wolf. It's just, just that has to be that way. Um, you know, that's what we expect. That's one of the boxes we check off when we see a Bond movie. We want to see a lone wolf operator. Uh, it's got to have the, the and then the other thing that I think is very critical, which I think in a sense was a little bit of a letdown, uh, especially with No Time to Die, is the villain has to be just terrific and just yeah. really and I thought, listen, we're all big fans of Rami, but I don't think his part was written very well. And there was not much for him to do other than to mumble. And <laughs> I think that uh, um, there there could have been more to that. To this day, someone has to explain to me why he wants to destroy the world, because I'm not quite sure yet. I actually think it would have had more impact if... The, the end, again, if you've not seen it, you can either pause us or, and watch it or you're going to have to suck it up, listeners. But um, the fact that when, you know, Safin is killed by Bond, to me, it would have made more sense and had more emotional impact if it had been Blofeld. And that's another thing, right. I mean, Blofeld just kind of was a throwaway in the movie. 
there were there were things that are off. But I will say this: even with things being off, getting two plus hours of Daniel Craig as Bond is a terrific joy. Because the thing that Daniel Craig has done for the last 16 years is just he's brought the character to a whole new dimension and a new audience, and that is so difficult. You know, that is so difficult, and you got to give the producers credit for hanging in there in the most difficult times. But uh, Craig is uh, is an artist, and uh, I can't tell you how big a fan I am. When I say that Goldfinger is my favorite Bond movie. Right next to it, in, in like a tie for first place, would be the first Craig, which is Casino Royale, which I think is just a marvelous Bond movie. And how did you feel when Craig was first unveiled? I'm going to be honest. I was like, okay. Mm, I didn't see I couldn't get it. And then obviously when I saw the, 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 the first teaser trailer, I was like, now I get it. And also when I got to see Layer Cake, I was like, ah. I get it now. Before I saw Casino Rattel, I was like, Laycake, right, I totally understand this casting. Makes sense. Yeah, we kind of disparaged him a little bit. We called him the Blonde Bond, which uh, wasn't exactly the most favorable thing to say about Daniel. We didn't know much about him at all. I had not seen Layer Cake. Um, I think I saw him briefly in one of the um, uh, Tomb Raider movies. I think he's in one of the Tomb Raider movies. He's certainly in the Spielberg movie about Munich. Um, yeah. yeah, but my jaw dropped during that first chase sequence on the construction train, train with the parkour. Oh, my God, that just blew me away. And Craig is a no-nonsense Bond. Some people refer to him as being somewhat thuggish, which I think is an interesting way of looking at it. This is not a polished guy who sits there and, you know, uh, trades quips with people. He's good with his fists. And he's good with taking care of business. And I think that is a harken back to the early Connery, because Connery wasn't, even though he did order the right wines at times, he could take people down with their fist. Yeah, he was definitely not in this sort of frame of when you look at someone like Pierce Brosnan. That was, I think, the other big thing. We'd seen this huge shift between the suave. I mean, to me, still, the greatest scene for for me, for Brosnan, is in Goldeneye when he sat being dressed down in M's office by M. I just can watch the whole that thing again and again. I just think it's an absolutely brilliant scene to see. Um, and I don't quite think we would have, well, I don't think we could have had a, such a similar scene with, say, Danny Craig's iteration of Bond. Um, but when it's come to interviewing people who, like the actors and actresses for the Bond films, for the, the people who worked in them, what's been the most challenging, rewarding on that, would you say? Well, I, I have to say it's very loaded towards the Conneries. I did not do as many interviews later in because uh, I never talked to Craig. I never talked to Brosnan. Um, I got some questions answered by Moore. Um, I'd say that... Um, it's very challenging to get people to commit to interviews because they've been interviewed so many times. I mean, when I did my first James Bond book, as I mentioned, there were no James Bond books. Mm -hmm. Now there are literally dozens of James Bond books, and many of them have done interviews. So I, I pull some of my stuff off of the Internet. If they're good interviews, I'll take some of the quotes. In writing the encyclopedia, it's more about organizing and presenting interesting information that people don't know. And I think what's fun about 
the new edition of the James Bond movie encyclopedia is the photographic research I did. I have over 400 photos in the book, many in color for the first time, because uh, I never could afford to have color in the other books. And uh, I have to thank people all over the world who contributed uh, to uh, the book in terms of what they supplied photographs-wise. If you, if you decide to do a book on film and you need photographs, if you go to the studio and say, I need a photograph of, uh, uh, of Tomb Raider, they'll charge you $300 for one photo. So if I had to buy photos for this book, it would, the book would have never been published. These photos were all given to me for free by friends all over the world. And uh, I can't tell you how grateful I am to them for supplying me with these photos. And because I'm an historical researcher, you know, I, I'm not just writing a picture book. Uh, I use the photos in a fair use manner. In the U.S. copyright system, I know this is getting technical, but yeah, I'm, I'm allowed to use photographs if I'm trying to make an historical point. So if I pick, I, I, I talk about the Disco Volante hovercraft in Thunderball, and I show a photo of the Disco Volante hovercraft in Thunderball, that's okay. And so far, so good in terms of of uh, any legal response and the book is done well around the world i also would love to know steve because you mentioned we obviously discussed the fact that for you getting into bond was from the novels so that's obviously fleming's work what show have you been on the continuation novels that have been done by the other authors like garner and benson and people like that well i guess i'm a fleming snob because I just, I stopped, re- I, I did pick up one gardener, and I think I, I, I read Colonel Sun by Kingsley Amos, and it just wasn't the same for me. So I literally haven't cracked open a Bond novel. Even Ray Benson, who's a friend of mine, I, I should at least read some of his work, but I never have. I apologize, Ray. But They are uh, good, Steve. They are good. I promise you, Raymond Benson's yeah, work is yeah, good. I just it's funny because I just reread Goldfinger for the first time since 1964. And I I really enjoyed it, although I noticed how markedly different it was from the movie. And of course, we have a lot to thank Richard Maybaum, the great screenwriter who wrote a bunch of the Bonds uh, and wrote perhaps the best Bonds uh, for how they changed things, because uh, they changed them much for the better. Now, I have to. Other than the fact that I'm incredibly envious of you for getting to speak to people who've been involved and have involvement in the Bond world, I have to be really, really honest with you and say, I'm so envious it's untrue on this. So there is a picture I found of you, a wonderful picture. You have a glorious moustache, and you are stood with my ultimate crush, Jane Seymour. (laughs) I I am so jealous of you. (laughs) It is untrue. I talk about serendipitous. I was writing an article for the L.A. Times in anticipation of my book being published called uh, Whatever Happened to All the James Bond Women or James Bond Girls. And I interviewed a bunch of them. And then after interviewing Jane Seymour, her publicist called and asked if I remember this. She said, would you like to take some photographs with Jane? I said, "Uh, "Okay." (laughs) <laughs> and uh, it, it became the back cover image for my book. I, I have to say that uh, Jane was wonderful. And my friend Bill Malone, who I was telling you, who owned Robbie the Robot, he came out and mm-hmm. shot some great shots. And uh, that was a glorious day. 
Yeah, I, uh, God, I'd love to meet her so much, but I think I probably got very tongue-tied. I think I, I fell in love with her solitaire, and I fell in love with her even more when she was in Somewhere in Time. Christopher Reeve, what she's, a wonderful woman. She's pretty funny in Wedding Crashers. I've, do you know I've never seen it? Oh, yeah, I think you'd find it her uh, quite amusing in that movie. Oh. She's a, a rather randy wife of Christopher Walken. Uh, I'm sold. Definitely. And Bond connection for both of them, of course. So both Roger Moore, yeah. That's right. Who would you put your money on for the next? Who do you think should be the next James Bond? Well, I tell people these days that not to forget that James Bond is a secret agent. So to start to get back to the mystique, which we got back with Daniel Craig, because nobody really knew who he was, I think we should go with somebody relatively unknown. You know, somebody who doesn't have, um, you know, a big reputation. I mean, Henry Cavill's name has been, you know, hit a few times. I think he's a safe choice. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure he's the right choice. He's certainly terrific in the things he does. Um, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but we have a series. uh, You're familiar with it. It's called Outlander with uh, Sam Hewn and uh, Christina Balfe. Sam Hewn, I think, is also an interesting choice. He's certainly good-looking enough. My wife loves him. Uh, <laughs> um, the um, the guy who plays Loki in the um, Hiddleston Hiddleston is a very interesting choice. And I was watching him recently on that uh, show, The Station Manager, I think it's called, or the Hotel the Night Manager. The Night, night Manager. Yeah. The Night Manager. He's very interesting. You know, he's not a big physical type. But then again, Daniel Craig wasn't either. You know, they were they kind of grew into the role. He's interesting. Um, But I think that there's a lot of pressure since the movies cost so much and the movie prices have gone so astronomical. When you when I when I did my research and found out that Dr. No, which is by no means a small movie, it takes place all over the Caribbean and in London cost one million dollars in 1962 that's substantial then yeah of course no time today was approaching 300 million dollars so when you're spending that kind of crazy sum of money they have to be safe so sometimes they pick somebody they think will carry the film a little bit better but they didn't with daniel craig i don't think daniel craig was a safe choice i think it was a bit of a daring choice and look how well they did they had bond for 15 years yeah it's gonna be i mean for me my money's i would hope you know, for a good choice would be Cavill because he was, I think, the second choice if Craig had said probably no because I've gathered he was the runner. But hey, the lap of the gods. It, well, so the lap I mean, of think, broccoli and Wilson. <laughs> I think Clive Owen was also in the running at that time mm-hmm. as well. He would have been interesting. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. I have no doubt there will be another Bond series of movies. In fact, I always say there are three things certain in life. There's death. There's taxes, and then there's James Bond movies. That's a very, very. What I also want to ask you about, Steve, because we've discussed Bond, and I'm hoping I've not, you know, hammered you with too many questions. You've been asked probably hundreds upon hundreds of times in the past. But you also wrote some a very interesting book, The Twilight Zone Encyclopedia. Um, so how obviously we discuss your love of Bond, how you got into that. So what, how did you get into the Twilight Zone? Why were you motivated to write a book about that? Well, um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm out there trying to sell 
films and television series every day, um, which is very challenging. I mean, I've made some films. I've made three narrative films and two documentaries. I've gotten chips on the table. But literally decades can go by before you get another film going. It's like winning the lottery. So I said to myself one day that I got to get back to writing books. That was part of the motivation to do a fourth edition of the James Bond movie encyclopedia. And I was looking around for another subject. And the Twilight Zone is just a evergreen television series. I'm talking about the first five seasons, black and white, 1959 to 1964. And I developed a relationship with Rod Serling's widow, Carol Serling, who, like Cubby Broccoli did back in the 70s, she opened her files to me. So where there, there have been other books on The Twilight Zone. I'm particularly fond of Mark Sacree's book, The Twilight Zone Companion, uh, which is a very good book. Uh, but then again, I needed I, I really wanted to get out to the public this enormous cast over the five years of wonderful character actors whose names should stay out there. You know, Burgess Meredith, Jack Klugman, Art Carney. It goes on and on. And, and up and comers like Robert Redford and Charles Bronson. These are people that were virtually unknown when they first came to Twilight Zone. It was an opportunity to really get knee deep into this wonderful team that put together this marvelous show. So whereas Zakri's book focuses primarily on the plots of the 156 episodes, I do talk about the plot a little bit but and behind the scenes, but I also get into the backgrounds of who were the performers that made this show come alive. And I, I interviewed everybody still living that I could find. And uh, I thought the encyclopedia turned out really swell. It's a great little amalgam if you, like if you're sitting there and you're watching uh, an episode uh, with an actor named Albert Salmi. Nobody knows who Albert Salmi is today, but when you see his picture and you realize he was in two or three Twilight Zones, you get to know a little bit more about him. I think I've done my job. And what what is your or what are your favorite Twilight Zone episodes? I have one that always stands out, so I'm going to be interested to see if we have a common interest on this one or not. Well, there there's probably 20 that are your mainstays. You got to watch these 20 because they are on a on a five star basis. They're six stars, and one one of my favorites is the Burgess Meredith episode where he plays the bookish little bank clerk who every day goes into the bank vault to eat his lunch and read the paper because nobody allows him to read. And then the world ends. That's one that's called time enough at last. And then of course, to serve man is one of the more interesting ones uh, with uh, the great Richard Keel from the James Bond movies. He's great. But I I have a, I have a tendency to like time travel more than anything. So some of the time traveling episodes are my best. In fact, part of the motivation to get heavily into Twilight Zone is one summer I decided that I was going to remake an episode of the Twilight Zone. So a bunch of friends, we went uh, out into the the hinterlands with cooperation from the U.S. Marine Corps, and we remade the seventh is made up of phantoms. Now, as you may recall, that's an episode where a modern American tank crew is on maneuvers in South Dakota and they go through some kind of warp and they end up near the Battle of the Little Bighorn between General Custer and the Sioux and the Cheyenne and all the other tribes. And uh, that was an I kind of felt like I would like to direct something to see if I have any talent in directing. So it was kind of a little exercise for me. And we. 
we filmed it. Uh, one of the actors was Michael Cole, who starred in the Mod Squad television series on television. So I, I, I really enjoyed that. And uh, uh, just uh, there's just a lot of um, elements of the Twilight Zone. And actually, when I was at Showtime, I spent 10 years at Showtime, the American premium cable company. I developed as a producer a biography of Rod Serling uh, with two wonderful writers. Um, and um, unfortunately, it didn't gel. But someday we may, may go back to it. I mean, if you think what Rod Serling created, it it's in that kind of same thing as, you know, Fleming with Bond. It's you, you almost can't imagine it not being around, but it's when you've got to consider how groundbreaking something like the Twilight Zone was, because there'd be nothing of that kind of style. And how much do we now know in, I mean, obviously it's been, it's been redone. It's become, you know, we've got, we've got a, a modern iteration of it, but the theme song plays immediately. People are going to know what it is. Rod Serling does his, his beyond brilliant introduction style. He was, closing. he was, he was a and very, yeah. he was a very frustrated writer. He wanted to deal with important issues of the day, but the television uh, networks, the sponsors who sponsored those programs, they wanted nothing to do with modern issues. There's a story that's, I think it's going to be made into a film now about the young African-American boy, Emmett Till, who was went to visit some uh, relatives in the South and whistled at a white woman and a gang of men grabbed him and they hanged him from a, uh, from a, a light thing. It was just a horror story. When Rod said he wanted to tell that story on national television, he said uh, the network executive said, you can do it, Rod, but you got to make him a Mexican. And that's the kind of stupidity that was involved in television in those days. They wouldn't let him tackle moral stories. So what happened was he used science fiction and fantasy to tell a lot of his morality plays because the network executives didn't realize he was commenting on racism and uh, anti-Semitism or any form of hatred he could meld into. One, one of his stories, which is so resonant today, is called Eye of the Beholder, where the woman is having an operation to change her uh, plastic surgery, she's going to change her face, and they remove the bandages, and she's a gorgeous blonde lady. It turned out it was Donna Douglas from the Beverly Hillbillies. Um, that's Donna Douglas. And they, the, the camera turns around and you see the nurses and doctors. And let's just say they don't look like you thought they would look like. I'm not going to spoil it for the fans. But the, this is a, a very, very strong uh, attack on racism and conformity, which was very much in, in uh, Rod's wheelhouse. He was also very anti-war. It's one of the first Hollywood people to uh, protest the Vietnam War. Uh, he was a legend. Um I don't know how he would react today to what's going on in the American political atmosphere, but I have a feeling he would be on the front lines carrying signboards. Yeah, I don't think you'd be, how can I put it diplomatically, I don't think you'd be that impressed. I'm rather annoyed myself for not remembering that it was Donna Douglas, but again, I know exactly what you mean about them not looking as you'd expect, because I had that. I remember that, but I couldn't remember it was her. <laughs> I've learned over the years, don't assume 
that every, anybody watching or listening has seen everything you've seen. Because the, the concept of spoilers is really, you know, is not is is can be upsetting to people. I was in a theater in Los Angeles. We were screening The Great Escape, the great Steve McQueen, James mm-hmm. Garner, Richard Attenborough, World War II POW adventure. And I made the mistake of talking a little bit about what was going on, and I got booed. People had not seen the movie, and they booed me. So I really, I really kind of been very careful what I say about movies. And I know we broke the rule a little bit with No Time to Die, but I figured your listeners, if they haven't seen No Time to Die now, they're they're you know they're way behind the times. It's very interesting when you mention the thing of spoiling. Uh, oh, sorry, or expecting that people have seen things. Because one of the, the things I used to do um, is every year they do repeat, they do a showing at Christmas of It's a Wonderful Life at a cinema. I don't think they've been doing it so much recently, but you could go and see it. And I'd go and see it with my father. It was a shared interest we had. And you obviously assume that everyone has already seen it and he's seeing it again and again. And there were people sat for down the row who never seen it. <laughs> which amazed me and they're having a wonderful reaction to it having never seen it before you know what's surprising to me about that movie is it was not a hit when it came out no it was not a hit at all and in fact it forced the bankruptcy of um of frank capra's independent company liberty films it did not make enough money to keep the company afloat but it's one of my all-time favorite movies i mean my goodness should be required watching for everybody. And what I find interesting about It's a Wonderful Life is, and almost it could go Twilight Zone if you think about it, everyone looks at it and says, what a wonderful, nice, happy, festive Christmas film is. Yes, but I think they also miss the fact it is incredibly dark in part, incredibly dark. And... Yeah. Even when I rewatch it, even though I've seen it many, many times, I know it. I'm still struck by that scene. I'm like, my God, there are some parts in it. Well, I think I think that because it was released so soon after World War Two. Yes. I yeah. think the public was not ready to look at darkness again. They wanted brightness. So uh, the other film that was released that year, which I just uh, just chronicled on my podcast the best years of our lives, which was the best picture of 1946. That was the movie that made the most money. And that was, uh, you know, that was what people wanted to see in 1946. Be interesting to see how the movie business evolves in the next few years, because having gone to streaming as a powerful point of view uh, for seeing films, uh, I, I'm curious if we can get droves to come back to the cinema because, yeah. you know, they, the kids are going. They're, they're going to see Iron Man. They're going to see Spider-Man. They're seeing all the various mans, uh, also all the various women's. There's Wonder Woman. <laughs> uh, but is the, is the general public going to come back to the movies? And I think Hollywood's in a little bit of a rut right now, at least for the over 40-year-olds who are a little tired of the superhero genre. Uh, which is soaking up a lot of the money. Now, me personally, I'm trying to sell comedy. I feel comedy has almost completely disappeared from the from the theaters, except in cases where they have those raunchy hangover type comedies. 
But I, I, my writing partners and I are inspired by films like The Wizard of Oz, Back to the Future, Ghostbusters, Night at the Museum, fun family movies that you can take your grandmother to or your eight-year-old to, and we can have a wonderful, joyous time at the cinema without wincing. And uh, I'm hoping to bring that back. We've got a number of uh, projects that we're trying to get into the marketplace uh and that's what I do pretty much most of the time when I'm not podcasting or talking to nice gentlemen like you. Thank you. So how do you juggle all the hats? Well, uh, <laughs> I have to focus more. Um, see, when you write a screenplay, as good as it is, and you certainly hope it's good, it doesn't mean anything. You've got to find the director. You've got to find some actors. You've got to find some money. I mean, it's almost like the, the, nobody helps you. You have to do everything by yourself. Yes, you can submit it to agents and managers and studios, but they're not going to want to take a look at it if they don't know you. They've got enough hands full with what they're, with the people they do know. So it's been a, slong, a, a, a slow education learning what you need to do to get the public's attention, or at least the, the executive's attention. And a lot of it is doing things on your own, without having to depend on studios and networks, at least initially. So it's been, it's been difficult for me. I, I'm not making any money doing it, but uh, my wife is one of the most understanding people on the planet, and uh, <laughs> we, can, we can still afford our, 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 our mortgage, so we're, we're okay. But it's, it's a challenging business. I don't have to say, say that to you. I know you know. But I'm hopeful that we can bring comedy back to the planet at a time when we need to laugh more than ever. Because, yeah, it's just gotten to be depressing on so many fronts. I, I'm going to ask you a Twilight. Well, I'm going to, because I've not said it, so I'm going to tell you my favorite Twilight Zone episode. I want to see what you think. It's Bill Shatner's the, on the airplane. It, it's Nightmare, Nightmare at 20,000 feet. Yeah. They remade the episode in the movie with John Lithgow. I think they changed it to 30,000 feet because they were in a different kind of an airplane. But I love that episode. Most people don't realize it was directed by Richard Donner, who directed the Superman movies. Yeah. And uh, it was written by Richard Matheson, wasn't it? Who'd written the, well, for me, well, he wrote Big Time Return, which became Summer in Time. And um, I Am Legend. Incredible Shrinking Man. Yeah. Yeah. Legend of Hell House. One of the great uh, one of well, he was on Rod, Rod Serling's writing team, along with Charles Beaumont, Charles Beaumont and George Clayton Johnson. Uh, it's a wonderful episode. I spoke to Richard Matheson. He was sitting on an airplane one day on a flight somewhere and he was looking out at a cloud and he pictured somebody skiing off the cloud. And I think that eventually came to the idea of something on the wing related to those gremlins, which the, the mysterious gremlins, which were supposedly causing havoc during World War II. And uh, there's a funny story about that episode. I talk about it in my book where um, uh, Richard Donner, as I mentioned, was directing. They were directing on one of the sound stages at MGM, which had a big tank so they could pour water on the wing and the water would go into the tank. And um so there was a proper drainage. So he went to get coffee and he heard a scream from the set and he came running back. And there was William Shatner having apparently fallen into the tank and was lying face down on the concrete. 
they thought he was dead. And then he whipped around and laughed at Donner and they were pulling a little prank on him. <laughs> so that, that was a little bit of a prank on Donner. And of course, uh, Nick Cravat played the creature on the wing in that episode. Nick Cravat was a very acrobatic actor. He used to be uh, partnered with Burt Lancaster in a circus act when they were in the army in Italy. And uh, I Nick, did not know that. Yeah, he's also he's also Burt Lancaster's partners in those great movies, The Flame and the Arrow and The Crimson Pirate from the late 40s or in the early 50s. So, um, yeah, Nick was the was the creature on the wing. Uh, it's a, a wonderful episode. And you also touched upon the, the film, which unfortunately has its own checkered history, should we say, with things that happened in the making of that. How did you did you enjoy the film, uh, the, the Twilight Zone, the movie? Which is, to be honest, how I, from a personal standpoint, first got into the Twilight Zone. I, did, I like reverse engineered it. I saw that, and then I went back to the TV, the original TV series. I liked it very much. I think that it's a great tragedy about the, uh, you know, the John uh, Landis episode. Um, the a lot of care was put into that movie. They obviously loved The Twilight Zone, the way it's narrated by Burgess Meredith. You know, Dan Aykroyd is wonderful in it. Uh, the various episodes were a little up and down, but I think the best episode is the uh, day, uh, is the the Miller episode, the George Miller episode, which is a remake of Nightmare at 20,000 Feet with John Lithgow replacing Shatner. Uh, I think it's a very it has a wonderful Jerry Goldsmith score, uh, which is a big plus. Uh, but it's just this is a movie that's always been uh, has a cloud over it because of the great tragedy for the listeners who are listening. Uh, there was a horrible accident on this film set where during a Vietnam battle sequence, a helicopter crashed and killed Vic Morrow, the actor, one of my favorites from the TV series Combat for many years and two small Vietnamese children. So the project was always kind of uh, uh, just struck by a terrible tragedy. Yeah, I mean, the only, the, if you can say, the only positive thing that came from it is it strengthened up laws, didn't it, in relation to filmmaking, children being in film. But it was, it was a, it, you're right, it does unfortunately leave quite a horrible shadow hanging over a film that generally will, as strange as it sounds for some of the segments, will make me smile <laughs> when I see it. It's, yeah, but it is, it's a, it's tricky on that. So, Steve, what did you think when we got a new series of The Twilight Zone, the most recent new iteration of it? Well, I was um, I was dubious because when they make The Twilight Zone in color, you mm -hmm. lose about 50 percent of the atmosphere. Now, that doesn't necessarily apply to all anthology. You know, over here, we're big fans of your Black Mirror series, which has been wonderful. And those shows mm -hmm. are. But in terms, if you're if you're going to slap the Twilight Zone on a TV series title, then I think black and white is the better way to go. Because Rod Serling was very, very, um, his production team was very smart in that black and white. When you show something in black and white, it already is a little different than your world. And another thing I discovered in my research, today we're very comfortable with product placement. You know, they, you drive by a city, you see the typical signage you would see in any modern city. Sometimes the breakfast food on the table is what we would have for breakfast or the TV shows in the background. 
in watching 156 episodes of The Twilight Zone, I discovered only two product placements in the whole series. One was an innocuous little oil sign in the first episode of a company that I'd never heard of, but it turned out was a real company. And then somebody has a Mickey Mouse watch on their wrist. In 156 episodes, that was the only example of product placement. Whereas that would be... (laughs) Nothing to distract you from the story. It's an otherly story. And I think there was method behind their madness. Yeah, I mean, I was incredibly dubious when I heard they were going to be doing a new Twilight Zone series. I enjoyed some of it. I didn't enjoy all of it. I didn't get very far. I watched the first episode about the stand-up comic. I thought it was okay. But then when I got to the new iteration of Nightmare at 20,000 Feet with that uh, that, uh, iPad, I just hated that episode so much. I hated the way it ended. I thought it was awful. Uh, I didn't go back. I probably should sample it, but I didn't go back in 1980, and I didn't go back in 1986 either. I just didn't have any interest. It's kind of the same feeling I have about the Fleming novels. You know, When Ian Fleming stopped writing James Bond novels, I was done. I'm not interested in reading anybody else's James Bond novels. It's just me. So I'm going to ask you one that, that I'm really interested in, because you mentioned The Twilight Zone. What do you think of The Outer Limits? Well, The Outer Limits was a very, very intelligent series. Very intelligent. You know, going an hour long gave you a lot of things to chew on. Very, very good series. I'm not as well up on it as I am with The Twilight Zone. Um, but uh, it's a very well-respected series and uh, some wonderful actors. And uh, I'm, I'm surprised that Rod didn't write an episode or two because it was right up his, up his alley. I mean, I can inhabit both worlds on those. I, I love both of them. So I w- also want to ask, I always like to ask this question to people. So, Steve, you're given a blank template. You can create anything. You can, it can be a film. It can be a book. It can be anything. What would your dream project be? There's no limitations to your creative uh, funding abilities, whatever. It's, it's your oyster. Well, it's a project that my partner and I are developing right now. I, I have it already planned out. It's already written. Uh, it's the best thing we've written. It's time travel again, of course. And it's, uh, it's I'll, 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 let you, I'll basically give you the basic setup. Uh, we have a young woman, probably a high school senior, maybe 17 or 18 years old. She's an obsessed fan, and she is entirely in love with The Wizard of Oz. I mean, she sees it every Wednesday night. Uh, everything about her life is um, is about uh, the Wizard of Oz. She's got it on her ringtone. She's got it on her answering machine. She's got. She has all the memorabilia. She just and she when she dresses for Halloween, of course, she dresses as Dorothy every year. It's her thing. So her friend calls her up one day and says, "Listen, I hate to feed your uh, your unnatural obsession." But Sony Pictures is resurfacing stage 27, and they've discovered some of the yellow bricks from the original Munchkin City. So she talks herself onto the lot as a reporter and is looking at this hole in the ground where they're excavating the soundstage. She sees the dusty yellow bricks, but then a little dog pops out of the hole who looks a lot like Toto. And she chases it out of the soundstage. It's about to be run over a car. And she 
hail hits her head and she wakes up and she's on the MGM lot in the year 1938 and they're making The Wizard of Oz. Sold. <laughs> we call it because, 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 because. And we're, we're right now we're trying to position it to, to get it in the right hands. But uh, that's, that's our, our, our favorite movie. And uh, there's a lot of twists and turns in the story, but it's the best thing we've written. And uh, it's kind of a mixture of Back to the Future, Midnight in Paris, the Woody Allen movie, that kind of thing. But it all takes place at MGM during the making of The Wizard of Oz. You've really got my attention on that. I re- that sounds, and I'm not, I don't blow smoke up people's backsides. That really does sound good. That really sounds good. Well, you literally got me, you got, that's a definite hook. So if anybody's yeah. listening who has access to film financing, get in touch with James right away because uh, we need, we need money. You know, that's just the way it works in Hollywood. You got to come in with some of the money. But we think we actually think we'll attract the right package. It's just a matter of time. And I think that sounds like a really good one. So if I can also just throw. So we've looked to the future. If I can throw you backwards for a sec, if you could have worked on anything in the past, what would it have been? Good question. Good question. Having worked on film sets and been part of the crew for a lot of shows, I I, I think that one of the films I would have liked to have worked on was one of the first films I wrote about, which is The Day the Earth Stood Still, working with Michael Rennie and Patricia Neal. Little uh, Billy Gray would have been fun. Also them, the giant ant movie would have been fun to be in behind the scenes, you know, and uh, taking press onto the set and visiting with the ants would have been fun. (laughs) I cannot disagree with you on that. We're getting close to the wrap up time, Steve. Can we have uh, anything like link? Can you tell us some of the links to your site, to your podcast, which I will oh, be yes. jumping straight on after we have done this? I'm going to be listening to your stuff. So anything you, you want to promote and give us links to, please. Oh, thank you so much, James. Um, well, I have a podcast. It's called, well, right now it's called Steve Rubin's Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm about to change it to Steve and Jay Rubin's Saturday Night at the Movies for conformity. Uh, it's a classic film site. We interview people both behind the scenes and in front of the camera from the classic films uh, and authors, film historians. Uh, it's on Spotify, Amazon and Apple. Uh, those platforms carry it. It's free, of course. Uh, I have a lot of Facebook presence. I do a classic film review on Facebook every Saturday under um, Steve Rubin, Saturday Night at the Movie. Again, Stephen J. Rubin, Saturday Night at the Movies. Uh, I have a second site called Classic Film Lollapalooza, which I also post on. And then um, I'm, I, have a, I have a website. It's uh, stephenjrubin.com, and J is spelled out J-A-Y. Uh, and those are my principal. I, I'm on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. I do some Twittering. Um, but if you type in Stephen J. Rubin in any of those platforms, you'll find me. And uh, I thank you so much for the opportunity. You'll hear about these movie projects hopefully soon. Uh, if you want to buy the James Bond movie encyclopedia, it's available on Amazon. Sometimes it's in your bookstore. Uh, the Twilight Zone encyclopedia is also available on Amazon. Uh, that's about it for now. Well, thank you so much for for coming onto the show and talking to me. It's been great. And I will say for the listeners, get the books. They are well worth buying. 
They are very good reads. I cannot thank you enough for, for doing this with me, for having a chat with me and discussing things. And I have to be honest, I know I have to rein myself in time-wise because Gemma does shout at me if I, if I go over time because I could have spoke to you for hours <laughs> and hours. You're a terrific interviewer, James. I, I enjoyed thank your questions. Thank you. And can I ask one other favour? When the film gets made, the, the time-travelling Wizard of Oz film, can we have you back on, please? 100%. I will definitely be there I, with bells on. Thank you. So we've been talking of Celluloid Codswall for this episode. So it is uh, remains just to say thank you for tuning and listening. And Steve, thank you for your time and telling us all about your work. Thank you, James. Be well and have a great rest of your week. You too. <laughs> <laughs>